0: Nehemiah 11, we are going to start at verse 1, though, and here's what the precious, inerrant, infallible Word of God says. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but and the cities of Judah each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the sons of Judah, and it goes on and lists the names there, the sons of Judah. Then down to verse 7. And it says, now these are the sons of Benjamin. And it goes on to list the sons of Benjamin. Verse 10. From the priest, and then you can go ahead and guess what's going to be listed there. That's uh, the the names of the sons of the priest, but I did want to mention verse twelve as it says, and their kinsmen who perform the work of the temple. There was eight hundred and twenty-two, and then list uh their names as well. Down in verse 15 it says now from the Levites and it goes on to list the name of the Levites and at the end of verse 16 it says from the leaders of the Levites who were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. And then starting verse 19 we'll read all the way to verse 28 now where it says also the gatekeepers Akub, Tamon, and their brethren who kept watch at the gates were 172. Verse 20 says, The rest of Israel, of the priests and of the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, each on his own inheritance, but the temple servants were living in Ophel and Zaha and Gishpah, where it were in charge of the temple servants. Now, the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Benai, the son of Hashabiah, and the son of Mattaniah, the son of Micah, from the sons of Asaph, who were in the singers for the service of the house of God. For there was a commandment from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. Pethahiah, the son of Meshezebel, of the sons of Zerah, the sons of Judah, was the king's representatives in all matters concerning the people. Now as for the villages with their fields, some of the sons of Judah lived in Kirath Arba and its towns in Debon and its towns um, and in uh, J- Jecabzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua and in Mamalada, and Beth Pallet and in Hazar Shuel and Beersheba and its towns, and in Ziklag and Machina and its towns, and it goes on to list the rest of the towns there as well. And then verse 31, the sons of Benjamin also live from Geba onward, and it goes on to list the rest of the towns in that area as well. Uh, and then verse 36, from the Levites, some divisions in Judah belonged to Benjamin. May God bless the reading of his word. Brother Brock, would you come preach this word to us?
1: Good evening church how we doing Good well that was a mouthful wasn't it we're gonna have fun tonight nehemiah chapter eleven that's that's where we're gonna be at um as you notice pastor Cody did not read every single word because uh that that's a lot it's it's, it's quite a bit of names uh that that are here in this chapter um names of people and names of cities um and and so we we see that here it's pretty dense. Um, So let's be honest, though. It's a little intimidating when we come to a text like this, right? When when we open up God's Word and we we see something like this, because when we open up God's Word, we're expecting some grand passage that's going to enlighten our minds, enlighten our hearts, and show us something special about God's character. We want something that just hits us directly between the eyes, something that just stands out that, man, that's something I can grab onto, something exciting, well, when we opened up to a text like Nehemiah 11, that's not exactly the reaction that we have, is it? And we can be honest, that's fine. That's, that's not normally the reaction that we get from this chapter. Um, and that certainly happened to me when I first began studying for, for this, this sermon. Um, keep in mind that my last sermon was on Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 is a very exciting chapter. Uh, if you remember... Um, there's lots of spiritual revival going on with the people of Israel in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. And there was a lot of practical application to be drawn from it. Um, and, and it also helped that Nehemiah chapter 8 is one of my favorite ver- uh, favorite chapters in all of scripture. I, I really love that chapter. And so I was com- coming off of a little bit of a preaching high, so to speak, after after preaching my last sermon. Um, but the night that I began to study for this chapter, I sat down on the couch, I opened up my, my Bible... I started reading, and um, <laughs> I was nervous. Um, I, I just sat there. I was stricken with panic, and um, I, 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 was, I was really nervous about it. I, I went from preaching this exciting text like Nehemiah chapter 8 to, to preaching a list of names in chapter 11. It's a big difference. And, and, and Melody noticed my, my panic, and she asked me what was wrong. And all I could say was, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. I'm in trouble with this. That's a bunch of names. And my loving wife, she's so helpful. She quickly reminded me of Second Timothy 3.16 where it says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's why she's my helper. And you know what? She's right. All of Scripture is inspired by God, and all of Scripture is profitable. So if the Scriptures claim this to be true about itself, then we have to read every word on these pages um, trying to find out how it is profitable. Because if it says that it is profitable, then that's true. So we can read every word on these pages knowing that it's profitable for our spiritual growth. So when we come to a difficult text like Nehemiah uh, chapter 11... And even if you're in a Bible reading plan, you're probably going through something like Leviticus right now. The books of Leviticus, Kings, Chronicles, those books that are heavy with lists and names, we can be sure that they are there for a reason. Um, God includes these texts in the canon of Scripture for a, for a certain purpose. He wants us to know something about His character or His redemptive plan so that we can further glorify Him. And that's why those chapters are in Scripture. Keeping that in mind, I want to take a look at Nehemiah 11 tonight with a fine tooth comb, and I want to put aside the fears uh, that come when we initially see a text like this. I want to put that to the side. We're going to study this thoroughly, and we're going to see what God has in store for us. I think that's always important to remember the context in what you're reading. Um, so you need to know what testament you're in for obvious application points. Uh, you need to know where you're at in the timeline of the redemptive story. And you need to know the context of what other areas of Scripture are, are happening at the same time frame. Like we know that Nehemiah is in the same general time frame as Ezra. Ezra was a little bit before. <clears throat> but it's also very important to know what context you're reading within the book itself. Uh, let's take a look at Nehemiah 11 for our example. We really need to know where we're at in the story um, that the author is telling in order to understand the intent of chapter 11. So let's, let's backtrack. Nehemiah 11 almost uh, seems a little out of place because there's a very abrupt change between uh, the chapter 10 and chapter 11. We, we see this kind of a, a break here. If you're looking at this text with a, a narrow scope, it won't seem to fit properly. So we have to understand the context properly in order to understand it. In chapter 1, we see Nehemiah, who was a trusted counselor to the Persian king, We see him hear about the ruined state of Jerusalem. He mourns for his homeland and his people, and he pleads for God to use him as a tool to restore the former glory of Jerusalem. Chapter chapter 2 tells us how Nehemiah requested the king to let him return to his homeland and rebuild the city walls. The king not only allows him to go, but he finances the trip on top of it, which was amazing. Um, Nehemiah promptly inspects the city walls upon his arrival, and he wins the trust of his kinsmen, and uh, he implores them to help in rebuilding the city walls. Um, we see the first encounter of some of, the, some of the enemies of Israel, like Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Then, in chapters 3 through 6, there's an account that's given of the wall being built and the opposition that the, fee- the people faced while, they were, they were, uh, while the work was being done. And in chapter 7, gives us a census of everyone who returned to Jerusalem from exile. And then we see this shift from chapter 7 to chapter 8. We see this shift, and we talked about this when I preached my last sermon. We see this shift where there's a break in the rhythm of the text um, when we get to chapter 8 because there's, a, there's suddenly a focus on the spiritual growth of the people of Israel. Um, the well, excuse me, The wall has been restored, so now the people begin to focus on their spiritual restoration. Uh, After being made aware of their sin, chapter 9 shows us the people confessing their sins to God and laying out how they have strayed so far from him. And Corey did such a fantastic job when he preached his sermon on chapter 9, taking that enormous chapter and showing us the beauty of Israel's rise and fall. And then finally chapter 10 is an account of how Israel vows to keep their, their new covenant with God and then they demonstrate this by signing a document. So that's where we left off last week. So why do we see this sudden shift from chapter 10 to chapter 11? Why do we see that? Why do we see that they're breaking off from the story of spiritual restoration of the people? It's because chapter 11 is essentially picking up where chapter 7 left off. You see, chapter 7 was the census of people that returned from exile, and then chapter 11 is a list of the people who were going to stay in Jerusalem and inhabit it now that the work was over. Chapters 8 through 10 are kind of like a sidebar story uh, separate from what else is going on. So this is very important, and I'll, I'll explain why very shortly, but it's important for us to understand this break in the text. So now that we have our context in mind, we can begin to dive into what the heart of chapter 11 is really all about. When we look at this long list of names of people who are staying in Jerusalem, there's one word that can describe the scene. it's service. Service is what we see here in chapter 11. It was an act of service for these people to put aside selfish desires and to live in the city because there was risk involved with this. So tonight we're going to look at three aspects of Israel's service. We're going to look at the the willingness to serve in verses 1 through 2. We're going to look at the importance of every servant in verses 3 through 24. And we're going to look at the call of distractions from service in verses 25 through 36. So first of all, we're going to look at the willingness to serve. What makes someone a great servant? Is it someone who can perform the task at hand perfectly? No, I, I would argue that's not the case because that person can be proud and pride hinders someone's service. It can, it can hinder their work. Is it someone who has the most experience with the task? Again, I, I'd argue probably not because sometimes experience can lead to narrow-mindedness, which can also result in poor service. So what is it that makes someone a great servant? I think it is someone who is simply willing to serve uh, where they are needed without selfish motives. I think that's what a great servant really is. is someone who's just willing to serve how they're called without selfish motives. You have to understand that living in Jerusalem was not an easy or delightful thing at this time. It really wasn't. Think about what's going on around the people of Israel at this time. They are surrounded by enemies on all sides. And that they all desperately want the people of Israel to fail. The city is still not fully developed at this time, and so the risk of being attacked is very, very high. The city of Jerusalem is literally one of the most dangerous, dangerous places to live in the world at this time in history. It's a powder keg that's just waiting for a spark. It is very, very dangerous. You think of the Middle East right now, it's worse than that. Does that sound like a nice place to settle down? Not to me. Do you think that the people dreamed of bringing their families back from exile just to enter into this situation? No, it's it's not quite the white picket fence dream that they had in mind. But notice what happens in verse 1. The people cast lots to determine the 10% of the people who were going to stay in Jerusalem to make it function. This this means that all the people put their names into the hat for a chance to be drawn. All the people did it. And, and this is incredibly important to grasp because this isn't like the Vietnam draft. This isn't a case where everyone was required to put their, uh, put their name in whether they were willing to or not. Everyone was a willing participant ready to serve as God saw fit. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that everyone was chomping at the bit and lining up and volunteering to go and stay in Jerusalem. And that's not what it meant. But... What what it does show is that there is a willingness of everyone to put the collective needs of the people before their very own needs. I can't help but to think back to the prophet Hosea at this time. Hosea was a man that, as far as we know, was living a normal life. Out of nowhere, God calls this guy to marry a prostitute to serve as a living example to the nation of Israel. Now, this was a crummy situation to be in. Let's just be honest; it was crummy. It wasn't like Gomer loved him back. She was unfaithful to Hosea time and time again. Yet, Hosea was willing to serve God when he was called. He was willing to put aside his wants, and he was willing to put aside his needs in an effort to serve his God. We see the same type of willingness that Hosea showed. We we see that here from the people in this text. But but why are the people so eager to serve if God calls them to serve by staying in Jerusalem? Why are they so willing? It's because they just experienced this great spiritual revival. Remember how I said that the break in rhythm from chapters 8 through 10 um, served a purpose? Well, this is the purpose. The break beginning in chapter 8 serves as an explanation for why the people were willing to serve in chapter 11. By opening the Word of God and faithfully studying it, the people were convicted of their sin and drawn to repentance. After repenting of their sin and pledging their allegiance to God, they were primed and ready to serve Him. That's the natural response of repentance. They were primed and ready for service. If you were to remove chapters 8 through 10, the text would not make sense because you would see, see a people that were still in their sin Um, suddenly ready to sacrificially serve God, and that would not make sense. That's not the natural progression. That is why chapters 8 through 10 exist, is to help us understand how the hearts of the people had been reshaped by the word of God in order to prepare them for the work that that he had ready for them. That's why we had chapters 8 through 10. So what's the takeaway here? What, What can we draw from this? I think it's safe to say that we are best suited for service to God when we are steadfast in His Word. When we're steadfast in His Word. Sure, anyone can be prepared to serve God and serve the church and its needs without reading the Scriptures. I mean, anybody can come up here and and do work for the church. But where is their heart at in this service? Where's their heart? Are they willing to, to serve because it brings glory to God? Or is it because it brings some... Some, some, some sense of fulfillment or self-satisfaction, where's their heart really at in their service if they're not truly spending time in the Word of God? Friends, if we truly want to be ser- uh, willing servants for the work of God, we have to be in His Word. We have to be. We've talked about it over and over again how the Scriptures are living and active. They have the ability to cut to the depths of the heart and reshape us into the servants that God wants us to be. Only when we experience the revival that the word brings us can we truly be willing to serve our God to our highest potential. Think about the book of Judges. What do, what do we see repeatedly happen to, um, to the different judges that God put into place? Let's look at Judges 3.7. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. The people made a vow with Joshua that they would not forget what the Lord had done for them. They promised to serve him faithfully. But what happened? They did forget God. They broke their covenant. They broke their promise. They forgot God. They didn't spend time learning about their God and communing with him. So when the different judges arose, they were spiritually deprived and they did not serve their God to the best of their ability. After conquering the, the enemies of Israel, Gideon fell in the temptation of making a golden ephod as a demonstration of their strength, and the people ended up worshiping it. Jephthah made a hasty vow to God that resulted in him offering his daughter as a burnt sacrifice. Samson's lust for power and women resulted in his ultimate demise. The list goes on and on, but why did these things happen to the judges? It was because they were not communing with God. That's because they weren't communing with God. And, we, and we're never experiencing the spiritual revival that leads to repentance and brings glory to God. That's why. Their service to God, and hear me on this, their service to God was tainted. Their service to God was tainted by the worldly desires of pride, admiration, and self-satisfaction. So let's, let's be on guard against this temptation. Let's not let this happen to us. Let our willingness to serve God be pure. Remain faithful to God's word and let it inspire you to serve, uh, to serve in how he sees fit. Now that we looked at the people's willingness to serve. Let's now take a look at the importance of every servant. The importance of every servant. I want you to think of your favorite book, okay? Either your favorite book, your favorite comic, or article that you've ever read. It was probably a real page turner for you. Um, for me, my favorite series is The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. I love those books. They are my favorite. I I, I see you back there, Courtney. Yeah, that's right. They are my favorite books. I've always loved them, and when I I was reading them, I could not put them down. I was reading them every night. I was reading them on my lunch breaks at work. I just couldn't stop reading them. Um, And and I I love those books for a couple reasons. Um, The first is because I think I identify with the hobbits. I'm short, I'm hairy, and I love food. I think that's the first reason. The second reason, though, is because there's so much adventure and wild mystery in those books that only an author like Tolkien could produce, and and, and they're just fascinating to me. Now, if you gave me The Hobbit, and then, in the other hand, you gave me the list of names of the graduating class of 2020 for West Nassau, and you told me, pick one to read for fun, there's little doubt that I'm going to read The Hobbit. I'm I'm, going to choose that for my fun reading. And, And that's not abnormal. That's not abnormal. Unless you've got a quirky brain that just loves lists, reading a list of names is not overly entertaining. Okay? Would you agree with me on that? Yeah. Okay. Here's the thing, though. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 11, we have to understand that this is not simply a list of names. This is not just a list of names. This is not a graduating class of 2020. As we already discussed, God's word is living and active, but it's also complete. God's word is complete. There isn't a word spoken in scripture that is not profitable for us to live a godly life. And there are no unnecessary words written in the word of God. We have to understand that. So rather than looking at this chapter as just a, a list of people that were chosen to live in Jerusalem, let's think about what their significance might be, okay? So we're we're, going to look at this list of names and we're going to break it down. So we've got uh, uh, five groups here. The first group was the sons of Judah. And from the sons of Judah we see 468 men. The second group are the the sons of Benjamin. We see 928 men. The third group were the priests with 1,192 men. And the reason there's so many of them is why? Because the temple is in Jerusalem. And so the largest group would be the the priests, the ones that need to be running the temple, running, uh, running the show there. The fourth group would be the Levites, which were two, there was 284 men. And in the fifth and final group were the gatekeepers with 172 men. Now, we don't get a comprehensive list of every single person that was chosen to live in Jerusalem. In fact, only the men were counted. But we do get an exact number of how many men from each family group were going to stay. And it can be assumed that their families were with them as well. Now, of these 3,044 men that are numbered, we only get the specific names of 22 men that were chosen to stay and serve in Jerusalem. That's only 0.7% of the total number of men. Now, at first glance, we might gloss over this, uh, these figures as insignificant. When you're reading and you see the list of names, you see all the numbers, it's like, okay, great, got numbers. But, I mean, I mean who really cares about statistics unless they're pertaining to sports, Right? But the rich truth here is that the number of men that stayed was recorded because each one of them was important. And their service was needed for the function of the city. Think about it. If Nehemiah didn't care, he wouldn't have bothered counting these men. If he didn't care about it, he wouldn't have done it. Because he had big fish to fry. He had a city to get going. It would have been very easy for him to just say... A bunch of men are staying here in Jerusalem from different families. Okay? But that's not what he did. He he lists the different families that were present and how many were from each family and what their jobs were. So obviously it was important. He was showing that every person that stayed in Jerusalem served a very important role. Now, not everyone had a quote unquote important job like the high priest, but everyone had a role that they needed to fill. In order for the cities to succeed and flourish. Okay? Think about this. If each one of the people from this list decided they didn't want to serve in this capacity, then Jerusalem may not exist today. Think about that. If they just decided they didn't want to serve in this capacity that they were called to, Jerusalem may not exist. The enemies all around Jerusalem would have gladly swooped in and destroyed the city if the people had not reestablished it, okay? And remember, chronologically speaking, the book of Nehemiah is the last we hear from Israel until we get to the New Testament. So had the Jews failed to reestablish the city, there may not have been a temple. There may not have been a holy city. There may not have been a people that still followed after God. Without the service of these people, listen, without the service of these people, all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament would not have been fulfilled in the way that they were prophesied. The service, or Their service was another cog in the redemptive plan of God. It was important. The ripple effect of their service cannot be understated. Likewise, church, your service in the kingdom of God cannot be understated. Do not ever for one minute believe that your service in the church doesn't matter. Don't ever believe that because it does. Every one of us plays an important role in both this local church and the global church which is the body of Christ. We all serve an important role. We may not ever have our names written down in history books like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper or any of the other well-known names in history. But our service to Christ is is just as important as theirs. So, personal story here. One, one time when I was a kid, I, I was at Duns Creek Baptist Church. That's where I grew up. And we went to kids camp. I think it was actually my second year of kids camp. And I remember one night in the worship service, my heart was pricked by the gospel for the first time. Um, I, I didn't get saved that night. I, I, didn't, I didn't accept Christ as my Savior. But I remember it was the first time that the gospel ever tugged at my heart. And after the worship service, I had a, um, I had a man that was staying in my, my room. He was our you know camp counselor, I guess you would call him. And um, he stayed up with me that night. He stayed up real late, and he talked to me about the gospel, told me who Jesus was, and spent a lot of time with me. We, we stayed up for a few hours. And um, years passed, and I forgot who the guy was. I forgot his name. Um, yeah, but I, I did remember the conversation. And later on... I did accept Christ as my savior. And I still remembered that conversation of that that man who took the time to share his faith with some little kid that he didn't know. When I turned 18 years old, I started dating Melody. And um, I then found out, we put things together, that that man who shared his faith with me was my future brother-in-law, Mark Horton. That man who took his time To share his faith with his little kid that he didn't know, sowed a seed in my heart that would one day grow into salvation. That, that that, That was a big part of my life. So guys, your service is important. It is important. Everything you do to further the kingdom of Christ is noticed by our God. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10 says this, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and love and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So don't don't forget, your work is important, and God notices it. One more point of application that I would like to draw from this is the importance of leading our families in our service. Leading our families in our service. Notice how when the names are listed, they are mentioned as the sons of such and such. That's, that's how they're listed here. Um, the reason that Nehemiah is listing the people this way is this to show us how family legacy should play an important role in our service to God. Our family legacy should play an important role. The only way that our children and grandchildren are going to see service to God as the, utter, as the utmost important, important role um, is if we demonstrate that in our lives if we demonstrate that to them. Um, I would like to think that one day my great-grandchildren would be seen as servants for their Lord Jesus, and in part because they saw it from their parent, who saw it from their parent, who saw it from their parent, Avery, who saw it from their parent, Brock, who saw it from his parent, Steve. that's, That's the kind of legacy I want to leave behind. I don't care if I get known in the history books as someone who was super smart or had lots of things or brought about world peace or whatever. I I don't want to be known for that. I want to be known as a man who led his family to servitude to God. That's the legacy I want to leave behind. And this should be your focus as well. Make sure that you're investing your servitude into your kids and grandkids and make them see how how you serve Jesus cheerfully and not begrudgingly. Alright, so we've talked about the willingness of the people to serve and we've talked about the importance of every servant. Let's now discuss the final point, which is the call of distractions from service. The call of distractions from service. What did the people expect to do when they returned from exile? Did they intend to simply pick a random place and begin to settle down? No, that's not what they intended to do at all. You see, in this time in history, family origins are, are incredibly important. Where your family was from is where you lived. And it's where your, grand, uh, it's where your generations after you would live as well. That, that's, how, that's how it worked back then. And this was not just unique to Israel. This is how much of the Middle East culture operated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Family history was important. So when the Jews returned from exile... Their intent would have been to live in the lands of their forefathers. When they were coming back from exile, that would have been their goal. Now, we don't really understand this so much in our modern American culture, because in many cases, we want to move away from our family once we're able to. That's just how we, how we operate, and that's the way our culture is now. The closest example that I can think of in, in, uh, in American history is when the Native Americans were tragically removed from their lands in the, in the 19th century and moved west of the Mississippi River. That was an awful time in our history, um, and and it removed a lot of people from their homes. It uprooted families and and tragically moved them across the country and put them outside of their their homes. Generations later, when it was legal for their descendants to relocate, um, many tried to return to their ancestral homelands um, in order to continue on the legacy of their families. This is exactly what Israel would have tried to do here in this situation in Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. That's exactly what they were trying to do. There was a deep desire to settle back into the lands that their forefathers had already lived in. And honestly, they had every right to do just that. Remember, when Israel came to the promised land, Joshua gave portions to the different tribes, okay? So he gave them portions that were inherently theirs. They were allowed to live there. It belonged to them. For example, we see Kiriath Arba mentioned in verse 25 here. This was a land that was given to the tribes of Judah and Simeon in Joshua chapter 21 verse 11. That's why it says that some of the people of Judah began to live there is because that land belonged to the tribe of Judah. All of these villages and lands were significant to the heritage of the people returning from exile. Um, they were so significant that they would have served as a snare to those living in Jerusalem. Okay. Remember, the people who were chosen to live in Jerusalem, they were willing to serve in this capacity. But just because they were willing to serve doesn't mean that they weren't still tempted by their own selfish desires to abandon their work. In all reality, the people living in Jerusalem had just as, as much of a right to go into the homeland of their fathers and establish themselves as the rest of the Jews that were returning from exile. But in order to be an effective servant for the Lord in the capacity that were chosen they had to give up that right. They had to give up that right that they had to live in the land of their forefathers. That's hard. That's really hard. They had to give up that desire, and it was also the desire of their ancestors who wished to return back to Jerusalem. To think that they had to give all that up is incredibly difficult. To be so close to the goal that they had for so long for generations, only to give it up, and then not just to give it up, but to see it taunting them from across the city walls every day. It was just outside the city walls. That's where they belonged. It was taunting them every single day. That's hard to accept. Folks, if we are serving the Lord in the ways that we are called to, there are going to be distractions from our service tempting us every day. Our two pastors have a right to have uninterrupted family time every evening and weekend when they are home with their family. I mean, really, we pay them to work in the office every week, but they technically have their family time and the weekends themselves. But because of their service to the kingdom that they are called to, they willingly give that time up, and quite frequently. They give up their evenings and their weekends a lot. They give up that right. We all have the right to use our hard-earned money how we want to, but we know that our finances should reflect our love for Jesus and not a love for the things of this world. Sometimes the distractions are obvious things uh, that we know are sinful, like an addiction to pornography, um, a romance outside of our marriage, or a desire for power and wealth that blinds us. Those are the obvious distractions that we cannot deny. But sometimes the distractions are not quite so obvious. Maybe maybe they're a little bit less obvious. In fact, they're even good things that we sometimes pervert. Maybe our desire for special time with our our family has caused us to put time at church on the back burner. Maybe your desire for more and more theological understanding has left you with no time to disciple a babe in Christ because they're, uh, because they're, they're so far below you in their knowledge of Christ. Or perhaps even service to the church has become so important to you that you fail to serve your own family. So good things can sometimes be a distraction from our service to God. There are always going to be those distractions in our lives that are going to try and pull us away from our service to God. But we have to be diligent to maintain our gaze on the glory of Jesus rather than the temporal pleasures that this life has to offer. As we conclude tonight, I want us to consider the sacrifices of the Jews who stayed in Jerusalem made. Think about how hard it was for them to stay in this place. Nehemiah gives us a picture of their courage by showing us their willingness to serve. He showed us how each one of the people's service was important. And he showed us how uh, there were distractions that the people had to face in order to serve faithfully. So, my question for you is this How does your service compare? How does your service compare to these people? Are you, are, are you willing to serve him how, uh, how he sees fit? Are you? What do you know that you need to give up for the glory of Christ? Because I know that as I've been preaching, you've thought about something. What is it that you know that you need to give up for the glory of Christ? Do you see your service as important to the kingdom? If not, I want you to know that it most certainly is. Do you see your service to this church as unimportant? Do you ever feel like I've never noticed the, the things that I do don't matter? Because that's not true. Your service is important. And even if, even if you don't get praise and glory for it, we know that our service is not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ. And what are the things that are distracting you from service? What, what are those things in your life that are tugging at you Tugging at you to to forget your service to God because this is more important. What are those distractions? Let's get rid of them. All these questions are things that we all struggle with in different ways. But I want you to know that there are many other people here tonight that would love to talk to you about them. Because guess what? We all struggle with all these questions. None of us are perfect in this. None of us are. Grab someone tonight and, and, and let, them, let them know that you've been struggling in one of these areas, or all of these areas. And let them know that you're not serving God to the best of your ability. We'll pray with you. I'll stay here for a few hours. We'll pray. We'll live, we, we will live life together for the glory of our God. Or maybe you're someone who's been sitting here tonight, and you're not sure that you're serving God at all because you don't know Jesus. You realize that my life doesn't really reflect service to God at all. that's the case, I pray that you would grab someone as well. That is the utmost importance here tonight. If you know that your life is not marked by service because you don't know Christ as your Savior, grab someone here tonight because I would love to talk to you. I would love to share with you what Jesus has done for you and how you can accept him as your Savior and then you can begin to live for his glory and not your own. Let's stand as we pray. Father, I thank you for this night. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to come into your house once again and, and read your word together as a community, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I thank you for showing us what service looks like, service that glorifies you and not ourself. Lord, I pray that the examples uh, that we see here from Nehemiah chapter 11 would spur us to glorify you with our service Lord. I pray that you would use us as tools for your glory and not for our own. Lord I pray that you would just continue to bless us and help us to remain steadfast in your word so that we can be effective servants for you. Lord praise in your precious and holy name.